you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and canna-curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. This is episode number 201. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 24,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show. Today we're talking about the New York governor is accused of using her influence in a pot deal. Visa cracks down on cashless ATMs. Flaws in federal cannabis bills threaten the legal market. A hundred million dollar quarrel with a Colorado cannabis company. Amazon gets behind Nancy Mace and her mission to legalize cannabis. Colorado meets diversity goal ahead of schedule and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Take that advisement. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up on the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. All right, kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Her superpowers are overcoming obstacles and challenges with unstoppable energy. She's also an amazing daughter, friend, and activist. Nicole, what's your story for today? Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Thank you for the lovely introduction, Susan. Uh, My headline today actually comes out of the Westward. Um, It is ownership behind Colorado's dispensary chain battling over $100 million. While I sound like Dr. Evil here, this is real. Um, I'm actually going to fully disclose I know every single person in this uh, article. Personally and professionally, I've worked with uh, and or done business with every single person in this article. So full disclosure. The ownership behind Native Roots, one of Colorado's largest dispensary chain, is involved in an internal battle over $100 million. Native Roots operates 20 dispensaries in Colorado, as well as numerous marijuana cultivations and infused products facilities. Yet, through multiple expansions over the past four years, company co-owner Josh Ginsburg and Rhett Jordan have been in financial and legal clashes with partner Peter Noble, according to the Denver District Court documents. With Noble currently fighting an arbitration decision that would award $100.5 million to Ginsburg and Jordan. Native Roots was founded by Ginsburg and Jordan in 2009 as a medical marijuana dispensary, but quickly became Colorado 
Colorado's larger retail operations after recreational sales began in 2014. According to Jordan, that's when Noble originally entered the operation, investing in native roots through his company, Bright Star LLC. In 2014, capital was very hard to find, and good investors were also hard to find. He's a successful developer with good experience in a lot of fields that apply to our industry, Jordan says, on the original partnership. Bright Star took majority control of native roots in 2016, but Jordan says that wasn't the cause of the infighting. Ginsburg sued Brightstar in 2017 for alleging a breach in the operating agreement between him and Jordan and Brightstar. Jordan, who eventually joined the lawsuit, says Noble and Brightstar violated the shotgun clause in their operating agreement. A special provision in the business agreement, such as clauses that typically allow one partner to try to force the other partner to sell their stake or buy out the partner who wanted to sell their ownership. According to Jordan and Ginsburg and, Bri and Brightstar, attempted to all buy each other out. Ultimately, Josh found the money, and Peter didn't go along with it, Jordan says. The operating agreement stipulated the partner disputes would be settled by an arbitrator, and in 2021, an arbitrator sided with Ginsburg and Jordan, awarding $53.6 million to Ginsburg and $46.9 million to Jordan, plus interest. At one point in time, my other two partners got in a quarrel that resulted in us bringing this arbitration together. Four and a half years later, this is where we stand, Jordan says. Not quite. Brightstar and Noble are challenging the arbitration decision in De Denver District Court, and according to Noble's attorney, Hugh Goffstock, the battle isn't over. Gottschalk's version of the events related to the shotgun clause differ from Jordan's, and he says that Brightstar was the partner at Native Roots Operating Agreement, not Noble, who was later added to Ginsburg's complaint. I will say this is something that's been going on for quite some time. It's been a quiet uh, situation, but it's not exactly been a secret that there has been infighting. Peter Noble is actually a very wealthy uh, real estate owner. It was a big deal when they got him into the game. Uh, everyone kind of saw this coming in a big way. He definitely is one of the people that I would say would be considering a predatory lender in a lot of ways, uh, looking at past experiences, in my personal opinion. Uh, but, you know, this is going to be something that we'll see how it plays out. Peter has a lot of money. And as everybody knows, uh, the, those who have the gold make the rules, right? And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Maybe Patty's got some uh, insight. We've got Patty Zanin up from the audience. Patty, what, what have you got to say? Yeah, hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I just was going to come in and comment. I agree with what Nicole says. I've um, This is the perfect example of what a predatory lender looks like. And um, I started about exactly the same time these guys were looking for the funding. And the fact that Peter even jumped in, you know, it's, he's just a greedy motherfucker anyway. But I really hope that Josh and Rhett get this turned around because it's their blood, sweat, and tears that built that company, not Peter Noble. But like everybody in the beginning, they needed cash, you know, and, and it was pathetic. And I've watched way too many companies get taken over by these predators. So, um, yeah, this isn't uncommon. And any new states that are coming online need to pay attention to stories like this. It's critical. I, I just want to point out that Patty is the founder and CEO of the Colorado Hemp Exchange, and this is one of the reasons that the State of Cannabis News Hour is so unique and special because we have uh, wonderful audience members that are, are boots on the ground, and that was a, a really great State of Cannabis News Hour moment. Thank you, Patty. 
Thank you so much for your chiming in and your thoughts on that, Patty. And I definitely want to make sure that everyone knows. In the meantime, Native Roots still maintains the same ownership structure with the Bright Star as the majority owner in this company. This is going to be a huge deal how this actually shakes out. The final decision by the arbitration process won't necessarily change the way things are. Um, but this is going to be very interesting to see how this goes and how it shakes out. And I really am putting uh, all my hope and love into the fact that, uh, you know, Rhett and, um, and Jordan are able to get through this and get all of their, their money. There. Hey, Nicole, I was actually in the LePan operation a couple months ago. And coincidentally enough, it's never looked better. They're crushing it out of there. And um, I had somebody that was interested in buying the facility and they turned me down because they've, they've never done better. So again, it's it's just evolution here. They're one of the more um, elegant stores in the state. I mean, they really have always made sure to maintain a very classy vibe. They've got really urban meets classy. They've they've mastered a, a lot of really great things in that state. So, I really hope that it works out for them. So, are we saying there's no boof? It, We're not saying yeah. no boof. It's, but it's called they never, they never claimed. But, you know, they've never claimed to be the connoisseur's cup-winning weed. They've been consistent. They've been loyal to their customers. And when they fuck up, they fix it. So that's why they have my respect. They've aimed to be the working man's weed. And it's Colorado, so everything's dry as fuck there anyways. Like, even the fire shit, as soon as you open the bag, it, like, turns to dust, it feels like. But um, they're, they're definitely providing every type of product that is available in the market in Colorado. Consistent purveyors of booth. <laughs> How's that for an ad for you? Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. That was a great segment there. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? I got some spice. My headline's coming out of Forbes, and it's a Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace is on a mission to legalize cannabis, and Amazon just got behind her. So like it or not, South Carolina freshman Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace is out here playing to win. She shocked the world last November by introducing the State's Reform Act, a bill that would essentially end federal prohibition on cannabis. She enlisted one of the most powerful conservative groups in the world to back her cause, Charles Koch's Americans for Prosperity. But now, after being somewhat quiet over the last month or so, she's swinging for the fences yet again with another absolute corporate cannabis banger, getting the online giant and one of the most powerful companies in the world to join her team of corporate cannabis colonizers, Amazon. As we reported on State of Cannabis News Hour back in June, Amazon announced that they'd be scratching cannabis from the employee drug testing, uh, first saying that it was hiring, it was a hiring necessity and they had no interest in actually participating in the industry. Just two months later in August, they began publicly supporting legalization and revving up their lobbying engines to join the fight because it was, quote, unquote, the right thing to do. Now, according to this article, six months later, Amazon met with Mace and says it will support her state's reform act. They don't want to sell it, Mace says. It opens up the hiring pool by about 10%. Brian Hoosman, Amazon's vice president of public policy, added, This bill offers comprehensive reform that speaks to the emergence of bipartisan consensus to end the federal prohibition of cannabis. 
bullshit. Amazon has no plans of long-term hiring as they've successfully stomped out all unionization efforts to date, uh, despite shitty workplace track records across all verticals, and they've already begun to replace all humans in their supply chain with robots and drones. Full automation is Amazon's future, not hiring good cannabis-consuming humans. Mesa's bill is just the latest effort to end federal government's ban on marijuana, uh, but the first to come from a Republican. Koch's AFP is all in on the bill and will spend millions to lobby to make sure uh, that this is the most highly resourced effort in the history of this issue. I've got no uh, pushback on that. They got all the money in the world. Uh, Mesa's pro-business bill admittedly looks good on the outside, She proposes a 3% federal excise tax compared to Chuck Schumer's 10% tax, uh, which will generate an estimated $3 billion in annual tax revenue by 2030. It will remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, The federal government would impose a nationwide 21-year age limit for cannabis consumption, with the exception of medical use, um, allow for states to make their own rules and laws around cannabis, including banning sales uh, and use within state borders. Her broader goal is to set uh, as many Republicans on possible uh, as possible on board with cannabis reform and show the GOP that legalization is a good campaign issue for 2022 and beyond. It's American. It's uniting. Um, May said there are three things that actually bring people together. Animals, Britney Spears and cannabis. She actually said that shit. Those are the three things I found that struck a chord with the American people and that can bring people together at the dinner table, just like apple pie. Hmm. I know I don't speak for all black people, but I don't really give a damn about Britney Spears. Christina Aguilera was way better. Fight me. Animals, it depends on what animal you're talking about. We can agree on cannabis, though. I guess at least one of those three ain't bad. Uh, Mason's bill also claims to address inequities of the failed racist war on drugs, estimating if it passes 2,800 federal prisoners incarcerated for nonviolent cannabis crimes will be released, and another uh, 1,100 or so will be um who get put in prison for similar crimes each year are not incarcerated. The government would save nearly $600 million over five years. But we know that's not going to happen. Republicans ain't going to just release prisoners back into society en masse. Um, all that's just a bunch of bullshit to drum up swing support. Let's keep it a buck. Uh, she knows that the States Reform Act is likely to go forward before midterms and former U.S. President and uh, Jason Beck's partner on global environmental issues, Donald J. Trump, is in her way. He recently called on supporters to look elsewhere after uh, calling his policy awesome but rhetoric problematic. All right. um, Wrap it up here. She said that uh, it means that if you don't do it, you're full of shit. There's no reason not to do this. And if you're anti-marijuana, this is not forcing you to do it. It's enforcing your state to legalize it. Uh, But if it's legal in your state, then we're going to tax it and regulate it. I don't know, man. Um, she seems like she's got a lot of good issues here and she's going to get the support of uh, her Republicans because they're going to own the conversation, own the narrative. And now she has the biggest companies uh, backing her, too. Looks like Nancy Mace is going to win this thing out in the end. Very, very interested to see what the rest of the team thinks about this. This is Rico Lemite, dopest dad on the universe. Back to you, Susan. I think Nancy will get traction on the House side, but yet she is still yet to get one Democratic sponsor of this bill. Um, so we'll see how that goes. And frankly, Chuck Schumer, who is the king of I'm taking my ball and going home, is also standing in her way. And he will continue to do that. So while she might be all right and have the cokes in her pocket, I mean, she's got to get through him. So we'll see. I think I think her her legislation is a good basis for compromise to say this is what we're willing to give. And then they can go back and forth debating between the Moore Act, her act, whoever's act uh, and see if they can come up with something in between. 
I just think it's kind of interesting that you have a Republican lawmaker who is trying to lead this, who may be able to get traction when the whole entire issue about targeting communities of color and families of color happened during a Republican-led administration. So I just have to say that um, that this uh, this legislation that that, that uh, Congresswoman Macy Grace uh, uh, introduced is actually GACC's model legislation, which I was the founder of, and I couldn't be more happy with the work that we have done with her office, as well as uh, bringing the coax in alignment on this issue and, and really kind of spearheading this whole initiative going forward. So kudos to everyone that's worked on that. She's got all the money in the world backing her. And um, I just don't see her losing on this effort. She's going to keep continue. Her star is going to continue to rise in, um, in my point of view. Well, and, she's got to keep her seat in uh, South Carolina first. And I think yeah. Trump's going to go she's, after she's, her. So she, she's going to keep that seat. I'm confident in that. I don't know about that. That's not what I hear. Well, not what I hear. Not go down this rabbit hole this morning. Thank you so much for that headline, Rico. I really appreciate this bit of information that we definitely need to follow along. Uh, and up next, we have Liz Rogan. Liz Rogan is a biodynamic botanist and a cannabis health liaison. And our pinup girl, what do you have for us today, Liz? Good morning. Thank you so much, Nicole. And happy Tuesday, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My story comes from Market Watch by Steve Gelsey. The headline reads, Visa cracks down on cashless ATMs at cannabis dispensaries. So in December of 2021, sorry, uh, I've reported on Visa's memo reminder that miscoding point-of-sale purchases as ATM cash disbursements and submitting POS purchase transactions is in violation of Visa's service rules. And this refers to so-called cashless ATMs used by some retailers so customers can have funds deducted from their debit account to cover purchases in increments that the ATM allows. This method skirts the U.S. ban on using the federal banking system and Visa itself to pay for cannabis by miscoding the purchases as cash withdrawals. So the story today is a continuation of the Visa memo. But this, this uh, story brings in a wider perspective on how this could disqualify banks and underscores the urgent need for safe banking legislation. According to Canatrack CEO Tom Gavin, the cashless ATM trend is damaging to investors dispensing dispensaries and consumers, especially when it comes down to its blatant money laundering. Instead of creating loopholes and using a cashless ATM, dispensaries should take advantage of other solutions currently on the market that are safe, legal, and transparent. Because cashless ATMs harm everyone involved by putting investors' hard-earned money at risk and the potential of dispensary shutdowns that will hinder medical patients' ability to access their medicine. Executives in the cannabis business said that the Visa memo accounts to a big threat to banks that issue ATM cards and process transactions. While the banks issue the cards, the big credit companies own and operate the credit card networks. So Visa owns the Plus, Plus Network, uh, MasterCard operates the Cirrus Network, and Discover Financial Services owns Pulse. Dispensaries don't join these exchange networks. They do transactions through a bank, which has the relationship with Visa or MasterCard. So Tom Giovanni, D. Giovanni, a CFO of Harborside in California, said the memo addressed to banks to warn them to writ Sorry, to warn them to get rid of this practice or you'll be fined or kicked out of the network. It's tremendous. Imagine a bank that couldn't issue Visa or MasterCard. You're getting kicked out of the payment business. Dispensaries are forced to use cash for all their transactions, and this increases the cost of security and boosts the cost of robberies, as we constantly report in our news hour. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill have proposed safe 
Banking Act open up the U.S. financial system to legal cannabis companies. D. Giovanni speculated that the visa memo may encourage more banks to lobby Congress to pass the safe banking measure or deschedule or bust, hopefully. Uh, Harborside does not use cashless ATMs. They use a process debit card transactions with a local bank that does all the compliance work to show the money is being spent on legal cannabis. And Harborside's bank uses seed-to-sale tracking that allows regulators to watch the product transactions through the supply chain. And um, this data is all submitted to the state. So um, Kindtrap, which is a card processing company, the, the, one of the founders, Kathy Iannuzelli, said being forced to conduct business strictly in cash adds a major expense to the dispensaries. And she said, though this is a problem, you can't solve it with a product that's fundamentally illegal. And um, basically defrauding the credit card associations is considered money laundering. And in one high-profile case, Ruben Weingart and Hamid Ray Akhaven last year were sentenced to 15 months and 30 months, respectively, in federal prison for handling $150 million in credit card and debit card purchases for cannabis by disguising the transactions as creams and dog care products, according to U.S. prosecutors. So uh, she continues, people have ended up in jail because of the miscoding at point-of-sale terminals, and it's gone to uh, becoming murky to now it's outright dangerous to flout the rules. And she said, you will find bad actors who will convince dispensaries it's okay. So some cannabis operators do believe, operators do believe that some of what they're being told is true. So expect more traditional ATM use and less cashless ATMs in dispensaries as financial compliance increases with more eyes on safe banking. Um, so this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm really curious to hear what you guys say. Will big banks step up to help lobby or will the cannabis industry be stuck with all the problems? So happy you covered this. I wish we had time to discuss that, Liz, but thank you so much. You made great points. So up next, he's the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer known for smoking the greatest weed in the world and rocking the smoothest mink coats while flying private globally on his life mission to identify and eliminate all the world's booth. Up next, the man known also as Kaiser Brose, Jason Beck. What you got for us this morning, brother? Oh, good morning, Rico. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I just have to say a trigger warning because my story has propaganda in there and probably some other stuff that's going to trigger some people. So just everyone's been warned. If you have a trigger, just know it's probably going to get pulled. Monroe County, Tennessee, deputies working to curb drug use in schools after fentanyl incident at Sequoia High School. Parents in Monroe County are demanding answers after a drug incident locked down Sequoia High School and sent three people to the hospital after being exposed to fentanyl, saying the problem has been growing for months with little being done to stop it. Deputies with the Monroe County Sheriff's Office said Wednesday that that this was the first time they've dealt with fentanyl inside school, which sent two SROs and a nurse to the hospital out of precaution for exposure of the substance inside a vape pen brought in by a 17-year-old student. The overdose reversal medication, naloxone, was given to the three who were exposed, but is still unclear if any were, were showing symptoms of overdose at the time. The teen who brought the vape pen into school was taken into custody, and the main drugs deputies confiscated over the past few months from teens D THC Delta-8 products, such as gummies, candy, and liquid vapor cartridges. They bring it into in in on a school bus or something like that. They drop a couple gummies or give them to a first grader or something like that. That could be very problematic. Monroe County Sheriff's 
Deputy Donald Reinhardt said. Deputies said most of the overdose calls they respond to at school were from teens who claimed to have used Delta-8 products, saying those teens reported adverse effects such as extreme paranoia and anxiety. Deputies said the student's vape pen uh, contained Delta-8 liquid, and when tested in the field, the liquid was also positive for fentanyl. Deputies said buying these uh, type of products on the street instead of uh, in stores can be lethal because you never know what's in it. It's really hard to tell if you're getting fentanyl in it, Reinhardt said. People that uh, haven't been using drugs a long time, if they get something with fentanyl in it, chances are they're li- they'll likely overdose, he said. The MCSO said uh, new training for school resource officers and other, other uh, agencies is set to begin Thursday for how to handle drug situations like those they've been seeing the past few months. Deputy Chief Chris White said officers and agents will learn the proper approach to drug overdose. They will also learn how and when to administer the emergency overdose, uh, overdose drug Narcan. The Monroe County School System said it is also scheduling tra- tra- training for teachers and staff on the signs of drug use and how to respond. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't get how in the hell you get fentanyl into a Delta-8 cartridge in the first place. I could see it being put into a gummy, but just be as being one of the main educators at Bro Science University, this shit just does not add up. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Jason, you... Great article, Jason. It, it was a great article, man. You are up for your uh, doctorate this year, right? You, yes, yes. I think it's telling. The article says they found fentanyl when it was tested in the field. But I bet they're not going to find it when it's tested in the lab. Sounds like a scare tactic. Great yeah, point, Brandon. Total propaganda, bro. Total propaganda coming out of Tennessee. But I will say this. I do not put it past our adversaries to stage something like this and actually uh, create this situation or create a manufactured crisis. I'm not past that point at all. So this could be something like that too. So there definitely is a place that is where fentanyl is being put into a ton of things, a bunch of things, including candies, whether or not they're intending for them to be quote unquote passed as Delta eight is another conversation. But like you can manufacture a kilo of fentanyl for like three, $30,000 and it has over a $20 million street value when you actually talk about the potency and what's available out there. So there is some really interesting things happening in the way of like products being made, whether or not they're intending them to look like Delta 8 or if they're just candy, fentanyl candies, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that's not actually being available in the market. I know yeah, that I, we, it's all propaganda, but I, I'm not going to take it past people that are doing shitty things like putting fentanyl in anything to not do that as well. No, I'm, I'm with you on that, Nicole. What I'm saying is propaganda is putting fentanyl into a vape card. I said, I believe you could put fentanyl into an edible like a gummy or whatnot. You can but smoke actually fentanyl. putting it into a vape you card. You could smoke fentanyl. You can... Uh yeah, you're, you're gonna see. You're gonna see. You're gonna see like tons of little, little, little flakes in in, in, in that no, cartridge, though. No, they they it, actually, it doesn't. It doesn't dissipate. It 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 can if it's homogenized with different types of of cutting agents. Yeah, it absolutely could. creams. There's literally fentanyl creams. That sounds like a lot of work to get it in. But, a uh, that's but, it, is, but it isn't. It's but really, it isn't. It is important that we keep on fighting back against this propaganda because these articles keep on coming out. And um, it's the repetition, and all it takes is a few high-placed individuals to catch on to one of these stories and take it as law. And now you have a bunch of people that are believing it that are voters, too. 
So well, what's what, what's even worse is if you get a high level donor um, that's really a real high level donor that this happens right. to one of their kids, and then they believe that law enforcement is telling them that, and then they go on an anti cannabis crusade. Facts. Great point. Great point. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline. And up next, we have Gretchen Gailey, our very own Washington insider and the founder of Panoptic Strategies. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Uh, good afternoon, Nicole. My uh, Colorado meets marijuana industry diversity goal ahead of schedule. Uh, Colorado officials announced yesterday that the state has achieved a, quote, wildly important goal of increasing diversity in the legal marijuana industry. But the data shows that there's still a way to go before cannabis business ownership is on par with the state's population demographics. Nearly 17% of the state's cannabis businesses are now minority-owned as of January 1st. The MED reported these numbers. Colorado had set a goal of at least 16.8% minority ownership in the cannabis sector by June 30th, 2022, and that's already been narrowly exceeded by the beginning of the year. When data on licensed demographics started to be collected in July of 2021, there was 15.2% minority ownership in the marijuana market. Now it's up to 16.8%. As of January 1st, the state has also approved 50 social equity licenses for communities disproportionately impacted by prohibition. As one of the first states to legalize marijuana for adult use, there's been significant pressure on Colorado to ensure that the industry is equitable, benefiting those who have been most impacted under criminalization. Uh, Shalene Title, former uh, Massachusetts cannabis regular, said Colorado is demonstrating that intentionally revising state marijuana laws to be more equitable gets results. It's one of the most mature markets. Uh, can, if one of the most mature markets can make clear progress, it's not too late for any other market. And although there's always more to go, we should all be aiming for a proportional representation in ownership at the very least. Colorado is setting and reaching reasonable goals. It's good for transparency and it's good for morale and having more data on what's working at the state level is valuable to inform federal policy. A demographic breakdown of the new data shows that while there's been an increase in minority ownership, the percentage of black people who own a majority stake in a cannabis business, 2.9%, is still lower than the percentage of black people who live in the state, which is 4.6%. There's also a significant disparity when it comes to gender marijuana licensing. MED's report says that there are 1,535 men who own a marijuana business compared to just 350 women. And with respect to license type, white people have a notably more expansive portfolio compared to other races. Colorado Governor Jared Polis is also working to right the wrongs of prohibition outside of licensing. For example, last month he granted over 1,300 pardons for convictions of possession of two ounces or less of marijuana. That move focused on people who are made eligible for relief under a new law that increased the legal cannabis possession limit for adults in the state, which Polis signed in May. At that time, he directed state law enforcement to identify people with prior convictions for amounts under the new two-ounce limit. Uh, it goes on and on to talk a bit more about uh, Polis's record on, on the uh, expungements that he provided and clemency that they might be looking at. My question to the folks on the panel um, do we agree that we should be at least looking for um, licensing numbers in states to match up with uh, the demographics of the state? Um, should they be pushing forward at least to 4.6%, um, at least in, in the state? I, frankly, I know they're excited by 16.8% minority ownership, but I don't think it's that great either. Uh, but this, you tell me, this scratching for State of Cannabis News Hour. Well, technically, Gretchen, 16.8% is a minority ownership. I, I get that. Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I'm trying to find out. Do we think 
uh, the number should be higher. No, I totally think it's higher. That that was kind of kind of my whole point. You're saying that they're wrong on their numbers? No, I'm saying that the number should be higher. What number would you like, Jason Beck? Is what I'm trying to get to. Um, I, I don't know if I have a particular number that I that I know that I would necessarily like. I just know that that number is too low, in my opinion. What okay. it, you said? What was the percentage of minorities in that um, demo, in that market? They were saying, well, they they get into for for right now minority uh, black minority ship ownership is only at two point nine percent. Uh, when people in the state is 4.6%. So should the number be higher than 4.6? If it's at 16, so that's like 4X of what is actually standard demographic in that state. And do we think it should be even more than 4X? I mean, that's, and when, that's your... And when you look at what they're, they're uh, lumping in, Asians, women, all, every type of possible minorities lumped into that 16.8%. That, and, yeah. that and that is the point that's so important to look at and look under the hood. Because what yeah. I don't want to see in Colorado take this whole big old stand, hey, look at us in Colorado, we're doing it right, we have this whole high minority participation, and then you have other states like want to try to follow behind, and they don't have it you know, 100% right, because it's including... Um, you know, f- demographics from from gender as well as uh, those from a racial um, de- um, demographics as well. And so, um, just look under the hood. Did that's you all. say? Did you say women were included? Yes, women are included. Oh yeah, that's, that's yeah. we're we're fifty percent of the demographic. So that's insane that we would only. Yeah, that's that's crazy. We're we're w- way at time on this, but I just wanted to squeeze in Lenita Sim Spears from the audience uh, because they are a regulatory attorney. Lenita, what have you got? Twenty seconds. Sure. My quick uh, take on it is this is the problem we have with affirmative action to begin with and gender equality. When we reduce it to a numbers game, whatever we think it should be, it becomes problematic because that's what people target and that's all that they target. I really encourage us to think broader than that and the why people are not involved and solving that issue and the numbers will increase on their own. Do not reduce it to a numbers game. Thanks. I love that comment. I was waiting for that. Beautiful. What did you I say, Roz? She's not wrong. 100% correct. Yeah, Lenita, contact me. Let's uh, let's talk about a, a spinoff room for this. But we've reached uh, over the half hour mark, so we're going to do a quick relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. This fellow dope dad and former cop chose to trade in his gun and badge for covering news on Bud. He's a cannabis security consultant at CC Security Solutions and our go-to guy on law enforcement stories from an insider's perspective. Up next is Chris Eggers. What you got for us this morning, Chris? Thanks for the intro. My article today comes out of Lake County, and it touches on human trafficking and labor trafficking. So just uh, a heads up to anybody who's sensitive to this topic. Uh, I I am, I have some experience working around human trafficking and currently working with Rotary on the anti-human trafficking committee. Uh, Huge problem and and is uh, 
you know, knows no bounds and is, is touching the cannabis industry as well. So specifically, this article touches uh, on human trafficking, labor trafficking in Lake County. And there's interviews with uh, an interview with the Lake County Sheriff who says that labor trafficking has greatly increased. And he thinks that this is due to uh, the illegal marijuana industry in Lake County. He says that as they go to different grows uh, up in, you know, very desolate uh, regions, they find folks that, um, you know, don't know where they are. He says that he's spoken to, uh, had interactions with, with many folks, Mexican nationals who don't know where they are, don't know that they're in California and are told to work these fields um, or their families will be hurt or, or they'll be hurt. Um, it's a really, really long article, but I'm just taking a few tidbits out of it. One case in particular stands out to the sheriff, and it touches on a 15-year-old girl who was, uh, who was tortured. Um, very, very sad. And, you know, I wanted to highlight this article as a follow-up to, I believe, Nicole West uh, had an article, was it last week, about human trafficking in the cannabis uh, industry as well and, and how it's uh, starting to touch this industry. So uh, my article, you know, again, I wanted to just shed light that uh, this is happening. This is happening all over. Um, human trafficking and labor trafficking knows no bounds. Um, it touches every demographic, every age, uh, a really important topic and something that, you know, it, I'm really sad to, to obviously see it, but I'm glad to see that there's a little, that there's more attention on it and people are being more aware of this issue because it's extremely important. So, um, that is my article today. Um, and thank you for allowing me to share it. Would love input from the correspondents or anybody on stage who has an opinion. Um, thank you for letting me share. My name is Chris Eggers and I'm reporting for the state of cannabis news hour. Thank you, Chris. We've got Chemo up from the audience. Uh, Chemo, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, my family has a property in Lake County. I spend a lot of time between uh, Lake County and Ukiah. And um, this area actually has a really uh, significant meth problem. Um, I think the law enforcement spends a lot of time concentrating on that, and that's why a lot of uh, these other things uh, fall through the cracks. Uh, but uh, there's definitely a cartel element up here, so it doesn't uh, surprise me. Dr. Felicia, did you want to weigh in on Chris's article? Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, it's not just the cannabis industry. Uh, they just broke up a um, legal, in the legal tomato industry, uh, human trafficking ring, modern day slavery in 2008. So it's not just cannabis. It's in the legal food industry as well. Absolutely. Thank you for that comment. I, was, uh, I wanted to add that as well myself. It is not just the cannabis industry by any means. Again, human trafficking, labor trafficking knows no bounds. Uh, it, it, it affects every industry of every kind. There's an illicit tomato market? What? Yeah, it was in uh, Florida. Imacola, Imacali, Florida. They're responsible for 90% of the winter tomato crop in America, and they, it broke up a huge, huge ring in 2008. That's wild. I do also avocado. Um, we need to keep smoking the news. Uh, Let's keep moving. Well, thank you for that headline, Chris. And up next, we have Eric Hislereda. Eric is an award-winning journalist, brand-building content ninja, fifth-generation California farmer's friend. What do you have for us today, Eric? Hi, Nicole. Uh, thank you for that intro. Hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from Bloomberg Law, and it's Flaws in Federal Cannabis Bills Threaten the Legal Market. Um, we speak often about the Fed and state laws both proposing on the books that impact cannabis, but this piece caught my eye because it points out what might be a major flaw in multiple federal proposals. This issue has been mentioned before, but I think it deserves a deeper dive. So um, to keep things moving, I'm going to skip the article's intro and get right into the weeds. Uh, quoting here, while there are now multiple 
multiple federal cannabis legalization models pending before Congress, they all contain a little-known but fundamental flaw that threatens the legal cannabis market as we know it. By failing to address the Dormant Commerce Clause, DCC, these bills would hurt cannabis businesses big and small, potentially endanger consumer safety, and jeopardize racial justice progress being made in the states. What is the DCC? In short, it's a legal doctrine that bars states from enacting policies that discriminate against interstate commerce. Because of the federal prohibition of cannabis, many states have ignored the doctrine and adopted regulatory programs that serve to benefit and promote the growth of local cannabis businesses. Without specific congressional action to pause the DCC after federal legalization, many critical state regulations and social equity programs that current businesses and licensees rely upon will become void overnight. While the proposed MORE Act does not contain a regulatory plan, both the Democrat-led Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act and Republican-led States Reform Act fail to address the disruption that will take place without a thoughtful approach to looming DCC issues. If Congress intends to take meaningful steps to right the wrongs of the war on drugs and protect businesses small and large, it must explicitly pause the DCC and clearly define the regulatory roles and responsibilities of states. Senate log jams notwithstanding, now is the time to draft a bill that would serve as the best guidepost in the months ahead. And no bill should move forward without clearly centering on equity, justice, and community reinvestment. Amen to that. Um, federal legalization that immediately triggers the DCC would make protecting public health and safety extremely challenging given probable litigation during the inevitable regulatory gap prior to the promulgation of federal rules and absent a congressionally mandated transition period prior to interstate commerce. Congress must clearly outline the balance of powers between state and federal regulators or at risk years of litigation and headaches. So if you want a preview, look at the way Congress descheduled hemp and its derivatives, uh, namely CBD, leaving a patchwork of state laws and regulatory chaos in its wake. Customers have no reliable information on purity or any guarantee of truth in labeling, while hemp-derived cannabinoids are sold at gas stations without proper product testing or age verification. There is a clear path forward. Congress can take steps to get this right by retaining state laws and regulations until the federal government has promulgated federal rules, leaving some critical regulatory authority in the hands of state regulators and investing in communities harmed by the war on drugs. The majority of tax dollars should be used to promote responsible regulatory compliance, ensure consumer and product safety, expunge convictions, support restorative justice measures, and fund key economic uh, equity programs. Congress needs to specially authorize states to retain their popular state-level programs, namely those specifically targeting communities directly affected by the war on drugs. Absent an approach to preserve these policies, federal legalization will perpetuate harm against the same communities that cannabis prohibition has targeted for decades. Um, the next section moves into some pretty salient points that are worth checking out, but again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to mention one that should be a given. Adults should be given the ability to grow a limited amount of cannabis at home for personal use. And that's what I got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me up. I'd like to have the, uh, the audience raise your hand if you'd like to see us do a room, do a deeper dive on the dormant commerce clause. So sexy, the DCC. It the DCC. Open up dormant commerce clause. Open raise up your hands trade. if you want a room. And raise them, raise them, raise them, raise them, raise them. Do what, Jason? Pass safe banking. What? Okay. Can't hear you. Huh? All right. Right down. That's a pretty decent percentage. I would say 12% of the room would like another room. Okay. Do we need to keep moving? Anybody have a comment on... 
Eric's headline? I just, I, I feel that, I, 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 I believe the exact opposite, that the only thing that is going to protect the legacy market is going to be interstate trade. And so I feel the exact opposite of this article, just me personally. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no guarantee, even if Congress attempts to specifically authorize some sort of workaround on the Dormant Commerce Clause, that that would withstand congressional, I mean, um, constitutional scrutiny. It's, it's, I don't know, I'd love to do a room on this. I'd love to deep dive on this. Neared out. <laughs> I just I just don't see how they how, how they how they could create a workaround. It's either we have it or we don't. We're either we're either hampered and, and have artificially high prices because we don't have interstate trade because of protectionist market spaces, or we have interstate trade. There really is no uh, no middle ground on that. Well, this article is advocating for a workaround. That's what the whole yeah. thing is. I'm not sure there is. And, and I'm, I'm saying there's no other industry that has any type of workaround. So uh, cannabis getting a precedent setting because of that, I think, is highly unlikely. Oh my gosh, I agree with Jason. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a winner, Laura. <laughs> that that needs to be a soundbite. That needs I need that soundbite. Okay. Oh my that god, I agree with Jason. <laughs> I agree with Jason. Well, we are going to get a room. Okay, let's keep smoking. Let's do it. Now, she's an entertainment attorney, cannabis and psycho- psychedelics advocate, and known in certain circles as the Princess of Pot. Up next, we've got the star of the Shall We Toke podcast, Shalina Panu. What news shall we toke upon this morning? Thank you, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is, in its first year, Arizona made over $1.2 billion in total cannabis sales. Don't get too excited, though. It's been recre- It's been medically legal since January 20. 20- it's been recreationally legal since t- January 2021. However, it's been medically legal since uh, 2012. Its total gross sales in Arizona have surpassed $1.2 billion thus far. However, this is a combined number of both recreational and medical sales. So the total $1.2 billion is partially medical and partially recreational. Recreational sales in Arizona amounted to roughly $528 million in revenue, which still far exceeds other states, especially in the West. For comparison, Nevada brought in $425 million in revenue in its first year of recreational sales, while Colorado brought in $292 million and Oregon brought in $354 million. Tax revenue for Arizona has exceeded $190 million as of December, and it's projected it will total $215 million for all of 2021. This is a big deal for the education system in Arizona because it continuously ranks amongst the worst in the nation. The education sales tax in Arizona produced more than $7.3 million, which is going to go towards schools with failing tutoring programs, classroom site fund for teacher compensation, and the workforce development. $92.9 million of the total cannabis excess tax will go towards funding for community colleges, county health departments, and more. For example, one community college district in Arizona received $17.1 million of that total amount. This helped with their education skills center, focusing on wellness, beauty, healthcare, and trades and technology with 35 career-specific training programs. Although it's great that the tax revenue is being used for these purposes, it doesn't change the fact that the enormously high taxation rate on cannabis is discriminatory to some degree in all states. My name is Shlana, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Listen, Arizona has um, some issues across the board, and I'm not going to even talk about the equity issues, social equity issues that are happening. I want to give a shout out to Jaja that's out in the audience who has been fighting and trying to get Arizona to get it right on that social equity front. Yay, Jaja! I mean, all these states are surpassing billions of dollars. It's just time to, to, to move forward on, on federal action on this. 
Like the federal government's missing out on a lot, a lot of revenue. And that can be fixed very, very soon. Can be fixed just by even passing safe banking, Rico. Oh boy. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> safe banking, safe banking. Oh, take <laughs> that moment to go ahead and hop to our next correspondent. <laughs> Laura DeCaro. Laura is the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, a badass camp mom, and the founder of the San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project. What do you have for us today, Silky Smooth? Hey, hey. Okay, today I have a story about one of our very own correspondents. Um, he's a valuable contributor on all matters popo related, Mr. Chris Ayers. Uh, Chris apparently did a few <laughs> Chris apparently did an interview with Leo, uh, sorry, Bear McGinnis for Business Insider, and it's published under the title, I Help Cannabis Businesses Prevent Robberies. Spending 12 years as a cop taught me how to think like a criminal. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So it starts out with, you learn a lot being an undercover cop. You learn to walk and talk like a criminal gang member. You learn how to remain calm among your newfound colleagues when one word could mean a gun pressed to the head. A little dramatic, but uh, it goes on to explain uh, Chris's uh, 12 years of service and that now that he's out of law enforcement, he wants to turn over a new leaf and to help protect those who celebrate the cannabis plant. Um He's um, spending his days now visiting legal cannabis businesses, but don't get nervous. He's assessing their security risks. Once he's listed a building's weak spots, he works with the owners to make a custom security plan. The article says this can require new cameras, new panic buttons, and actually one thing that I found interesting, new training for security guards to help them de-escalate situations quickly. He says those communication skills can make all the difference when the panic button's been hit and the cops are on their way. We had a saying back on the force, he goes on, I'd rather talk to you for five minutes than fight you for 30 seconds. So, um, but even the fortified businesses won't withstand a certain level of criminal aggression, of course. So Chris also discusses plan B, the insurance options. Unfortunately, he admits a lot of dispensaries in the Bay Area have been turning to their Plan B lately, but while none of Chris's clients were hit by the recent rush of robberies in California, he has apparently been quickly inundated with new ones that were. Hopefully, his services will provide them with what we need to secure our um, uh, our fellow businesses um, in here in Northern California. But as a former cop, Chris wasn't exactly sure whether he'd be wanted. He said all that changed. Quote, when I was starting out my firm and a friend of mine in the industry, a former felon no less, introduced me to another business owner. She said, yeah, he's a cop. Well, yeah, he was undercover, but he's one of us. To be welcomed into this industry by the people who helped build it, that means everything to Mr. Eggers. And I just wanted to celebrate Chris's profiling in um, Business Insider and say thank you so much for all of your amazing insight um, into law enforcement activities uh, as we we question the news uh, and the progress of our industry. So thanks so much, Chris. This is (laughs) why. 
Laura, thank you so much for sharing that. Everybody, thank you. That means the world to me. And, and honestly, uh, the big takeaway from that is, um, and I've said this on, on numerous times, is the acceptance of the people in the industry who helped build this industry to allow a former undercover cop to, to be here uh, attempting to add value and operate in the space. Um, thank you. Who is Was that quoted? What, what? Chris, was that me who quoted? You know, the, <laughs> you know, Nicole. There, there's, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole. So, so what, we're gonna ruin that my time because, cool. because there was, there was. I have a funny story for another day of, of how I uh, first started interacting with Nicole West, and it's uh, one of my favorite most stories. Thank you. Alrighty. I just have to say, in this article, when Laura started talking um, and mentioning uh, Plan B, I thought she was uh, literally going to start talking about birth control. <laughs> no, no, he starts. He does. Chris does go uh, uh, on uh, in the article a little bit about uh, how criminals like their ins and outs. But I wasn't going. Oh dear Lord! Oh, that's that's smoking the news. That's, you should get a room on that, Laura. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Let's do it. People holding your pocket. So, up next, he's the CEO of deliciously vegan and kosher edible brand fruit slabs but don't be fooled by the sexy signature beard and cool ass aviator specs he's also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney with an all-star client list and experience on deck to sue your ass if you slip up repping long beach heavy up next is brandon dorsky what flavor new slabs you got for us this morning my man uh my news has a new york flavor this morning it's Hockle's office pushed for 75 million sale of pot retailer to help campaign donor, lawsuit says, as reported by the New York Post. The temperature is heating up on New York's new governor, Kathy Hochul, over some allegations of possible cronyism concerning Ascend's acquisition of MedMen's medical marijuana dispensary license in New York. MedMen filed a lawsuit alleging that Hockle's office pushed regulators to give the blessing to a controversial deal after dragging their feet. And all this happened just days after one of Ascend's executives attended a fundraiser for her re-election campaign. The fundraiser was hosted by Fürsten Kulik, a Manhattan-based law firm purporting to be, quote, a major player in the field of cannabis law that advises on obtaining licenses from state governments. The allegations claim her administration used improper influence to help Ascend Wellness complete its $75 million deal to buy the MedMen chain. MedMen wants out of their deal, which was set to expire on January 1st if state officials took no action, and it's, and it's relatively low sales price because the value of that license presumably soared once Hockle took the state's reins and announced the statewide rollout of cannabis retail was a priority. The controversial fundraising rendezvous took place on December 8th at the Vandy Club in Midtown and specifically targeted companies looking to enter into New York's newly legalized recreational marijuana market. Uh, first in Kulik, attorney Nancy Baynard encouraged attendees to donate $10,000, each saying the firm was in touch with, quote, the director of finance for Hockle's administration and campaign. Andrew Brown, the president of Ascend, was one of the attendees at the fundraiser. On December 10th, Hockle's secretary and two other aides, including Catherine Garcia, the former Democratic mayoral hopeful, allegedly met with Ascend CEO Abner Curtin and other company reps. And on December 28th, a couple days before the deal's term was set to expire, the newly created Office of Cannabis Management and its Cannabis Control Board approved the Ascend MedMen deal. 
Medved's suit alleges that the meeting between Ascend CEO and senior state executive officials just two days after the fundraiser and the subsequent approval of the transaction, quote, together raised a clear inference of improper influence by Ascend um, in the state approval process. Hockle spokeswoman denied that a meeting took place and claimed the allegations were false and the senior team members never met with the Ascend CEO. On January 2nd, MedMen informed Ascend it was terminating the agreement on the basis that the conditions for the deal were not satisfied. MedMen's attorneys are seeking a judge to reject Ascend's injunction that would block MedMen from walking away from the merger. The Office of Cannabis Management in New York would not comment for the article. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. We are so at time. I want to make sure that we get to Roz. Sorry. Uh, thank you for that headline, uh, Brandon. Uh, but up next, we have Roz McCarthy, Minorities for Medical Marijuana founder and CEO. What do you have for us today, Roz? Okay, guys. Listen, we're going to make this fast and quick. Um, the state of Missouri, this comes from the Missouri Independent. As Missouri looks to legalize recreational marijuana expungement, gets renewed attention. And so I'm just super proud of this story because um, Brennan England, our state director with M4MM, um, created this debate that was online last week. It pushed to legalize recreational marijuana use in Missouri. It's coming from multiple directions with a handful of proposed initiative petitions and at least one bill and potentially more backed by Republican lawmakers. So there's two different bills there. I mean, two different languages out there for adult use. Um, and so some of the proposals differ on how to handle the expungement. Some propose an automatic system that would have courts identify the old offenses and seal them on people's records. Others would require people to submit a petition and pay a fee. Um, every conversation should start with a criminal expungement and how the war on drugs has been part of the extension of systemic racism, says Brennan England, state director of Minorities for Medical Marijuana, an advocacy group for minority businesses. So I don't know if we have Brennan on the stage, but would love to get him to weigh in on the legal. There's two initiatives, the legal Missouri ballot initiative. And then the second one is going to be um, fair access. So is, is Brennan on stage? Is he able to come in and, and talk a little bit about this, those two initiatives and how they differ and what's important for Missouri? Yes, thanks, Roz. I'm going to keep this really brief. Uh, yep. So the, the main thing here is that we're looking at how and when and who actually gets to get out of jail. Okay, so whenever we look at legal Missouri, uh, they're, they're offering and fluffing a lot of expungement opportunities uh, with limits. Uh, like if you were arrested and on your record, you were under the influence of and you've been ticketed for being under the influence of marijuana during the arrest. Also, if you were arrested for over uh, three pounds, uh, you not only if you were arrested for over three pounds, you can get expunged, but you still have to fill out your, your entire sentence. You have to fulfill your sentence. Uh, so I kind of held their feet to the fire on that. I asked, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you explain that to families who, you know, some families that had two and a, a family member that's out that had two and a half pounds, while other family members are still staying in jail for three and a half pounds, uh, seems pretty absurd. Um, but then legal, then we have Fair Access Missouri, uh, which has immediate expungement. There are uh, there's there's paperwork that has to be filed, but the reason they went this route is that it follows a process that's already in place at the state level uh, by having paperwork involved. Uh, instead of immediate expungement, it actually encourages for the process to happen faster. Yes, there's a fee involved, but 
everybody involved. Uh, there's already a, a nonprofit involved to fund those expungements for people. Uh, so it's a split in the stream. Uh, we're going to watch to see what happens with legislation from the state level that's pushing just as hard right now. Um, so we're started. We're caught at a middle ground. We've we've got to end the show. Thank you so much. We sure packed a lot of news into 60 minutes. I wanted to get the audience to weigh in. We wanted a little bit more time on that Governor Hochul uh, story. If you guys want it, we can do a spinoff room right now. Raise your hands if you're in the audience and you want to do a spinoff room on that New York story. Otherwise, it was a really great show. Uh, talk about it. Tuesday was spicy. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show. Thank you to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there is news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Bye. Goodbye.